morning. Happy to be back with you this morning. Happy to have an almost back voice this morning. Um, it was, you were all very kind about what it sounded like, but to have to listen to a seal make noises for an hour probably was pretty miserable for everybody, but I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have a relatively strong voice and uh, especially happy to be able to preach the Word of God today. Uh, the Word of God is true. It's the same as it was uh, from the beginning, and it has withstood the test of time, and it's good for us. It's good for us to know how to follow God, how to find God, how to follow God, how to trust Him, and um, how to love Him. And so we're going to open that word today. We're going to finish the second part of a sermon we started last week, Born Again to a Living Hope, the quest to maintaining the proper conduct as a child of God. It'll be the second part of the quest to maintaining the proper conduct as a child of God from 1 Peter 17, 1, 17 through 21. Let's pray this morning before we begin. Father God, Lord, you are holy. There is none like you. Lord, you are perfect in all of your ways. You are just. You do right. You are the very definition of right. Lord, help us to, in our journey to follow you, help us to have a piece of that. Help us to pursue justice, righteousness. Help us to pursue holiness. Lord, you help us to be people who set apart our lives in order to be more like you, in order to be more like your son. Lord, we ask the Spirit of God to work in us, to reign in us, to move in us, so that we can be examples for the church, so that we can be examples for our family, so that we can be examples for the world. Lord, help us to fear you, help us to keep your word, help us to trust you, to give our lives to you every morning, every day, to lay our head down knowing we've done the best that we can to honor you. We love you, we praise you, we give you today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. For the last several weeks we've been talking about faith and hope and how each is different but is founded on the same principles. It's founded on the same trust and that is in a great God who has always loved us, who has always cared for us, who has always had a plan to redeem his children and who saw that plan through in the work and person of Jesus Christ, and who is currently holding all of that together through the Spirit of God. Uh, what a great salvation. Specifically, what a great God who is in charge of that salvation. There's a lot of faith to be had, that is, trusting in what we know has happened for us. There's also a lot of hope to be had, that is, trusting in no no, trusting and knowing what will happen for us in the future. Because of this, we trust in this great God. The knowledge of this great God and this great salvation should bring forth from us love. It should bring forth from us joy, perseverance, persistence in the faith, and a whole uh, mess of other things. When we think about God, we should relish in all the ways he loves us and cares for us, for sure. But we also learn that there is more for Christians to do than just love God and be loved by God. 
we learned from last week and following in, into this week that Christians must take proper action. There must be a response other than just love, other than just joy for the Christian. Obedience is a natural response and proper conduct is a natural response for believers. We saw it last week starting in First uh, Peter 1 verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So last week we started this message on what proper conduct should look like for a believer, and we found that proper conduct should, uh, should lead to action because there is a proper focus on our hope. Peter said, prepare for action, literally gird up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded, be ready to run, be clear-headed, and focus on the grace that is to come. This is how we have hope. This is how we know where our hope lies. We're ready for action. We're ready to do for the Lord. We're clear on what the, me the message and the method of that is. And we focus on, even though we have an immense amount of grace that we've been given today, we focus on the grace that is yet to come in the second coming of Christ our Lord. Another thing we learned last week about uh, having proper conduct as a Christian is not conforming to the former lust. It is breaking the pattern of sin that identified us before Christ. It's breaking the pattern of sin that identified us as lost before Christ came into our lives. Do not be not being conformed to the former lust. And the reason is simple. <clears throat> because if we are in Christ, he works in us to change our lives in such a way that our lives have no room for the way that we once lived. Do not be conformed to the former lust. And so what that means is there's this transference that we, dis we discovered last week to holy conduct. Not only does his spirit lead us to not being conformed to the former lust, but his spirit leads us to being like him. And he is holy. And so a natural response for someone who is professing Christ is not to go on living the way they were before Christ, but it's living the way they are now in Christ. Living like the Father, living like the Son, living like the Spirit, the three in one who are all holy. Conforming to the image of Christ. Not just living better, but living different. Not just living a better life, but living a different life. I can promise you, if you believe that God, and we're going we're gonna to outline it today, and, it, and I hope it's as good for you as it was for me, but, or as it has been for me in studying this, but if we're going to believe that, Christ did, that God did all this work throughout all of time with his Son, through the Spirit of God, if we're going to believe that he did all of that for us to live better lives, we're sadly mistaken. You know, we can earn an extra couple hundred dollars a month and live better lives. 
You know, we can eat better and live better lives. We can exercise and live better lives. The Son of God did not come down to earth to spill his, his precious blood for us so that we could live better lives. He came down so we could be different. He came down so we could be a new creation, so we can live new lives. And so don't come to Christ and don't be a part of this fellowship and this faith thinking that you are intended to live better lives. You're intended to live a new life, and we're going to see a little bit more of that today. Today, we're going to continue this thought on maintaining proper conduct as a child of God. Proper godly conduct is necessary in the life of believers, not to prove that you're a Christian, not to prove to other people that you're a good person, but to prove that there has been the necessary change in your life that, that comes when the Spirit of God overtakes your life. There are people who call themselves Christians. A lot of people who call themselves Christians, they still go on freely sinning without any breaks. They never pump the brakes on their old lifestyle. They never make much change. Or if they do, it's because they've rewritten what is holy. They say, this is not a sin, that is not a sin, so therefore I am living holy li a life because these things are not sins. There are also people who... Um, when they come to Christ, they know, I don't want to live that old way. So they set up a bunch of rules for themselves. They set up a bunch of standards and they say, I'm not going to live that old way, so I'm going to do every single thing that I can possibly do. And then God's going to find me good because I'm doing what I can do. And those people are called legalists a lot of times. Now, living a good life and setting rules and standards for yourself is not always legalism. But if, that's, if you're doing it to change your behavior only and not change your life, then it is legalism. This is a physical obedience, but often that's not followed by a spiritual obedience. The first is called licensure. It's when you do what you want, when you want, and you trust that God's grace is just better than what you've done. Or even maybe changing what the standard is to following God. The, the other is called legalism. It's when you obey God, you change your behavior, but you don't ever change. Your heart is never changed. Both of these behaviors are a problem. But to the casual observer, I, I would probably rather be known as a legalist than someone who is a licensure. If you're going to know uh, someone who practices licensure, if you're going to know me, if you're going to label me, if you're going to pigeonhole me, I'd rather you call me a legalist. Because oftentimes Christians who are just doing the word of God, who are just obeying God, are called legalists when it's not really true. But obviously there is a better way than licensure. There is a better way than legalism. I don't want to be known as a legalist, or I don't want to be known as a legalist at all, but I, if I'm going to be known as a legalist, I don't want to be known because I'm judgmental or because I'm holier than thou, but if, I, if someone's going to call me a legalist because I follow the Lord, I want it to be because my life is effectively showing the effective nature of our salvation, People will often call you a legalist just if you're living for the Lord, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Being slandered for doing good is not necessarily a bad thing. Being slandered for doing wrong and calling yourself a Christian is. Do you understand the difference or am I making a mess of this? Maybe I should go back to whispering.
the effectiveness of the work of Christ and the Spirit of God is it is necessary to be seen in our lives. And sometimes you'll be slandered. Sometimes you'll be called a legalist. But I think I'd rather be called a legalist than someone who just takes license with their salvation. Now, while legalism is still missing the mark, because often it's just a change of behavior without a change of heart, living free and doing as we please also misses the mark because God is holy and he expects holiness from us. He doesn't expect us to go on living the way that we want to live. So if you have a choice, I think the safe choice would be <coughs> living more like a, a, a nun than a rock star, okay? Uh, I'm not saying that you have to do either, but the safer choice would be leaning on one of those sides than the other. We can be incarnational to the world. That means uh, living in the world in a way that we don't look like Amish people or like nuns or like, you know, monks. You know, we should live in the world. We should dress the way the world dressed, dresses within moderation. You know, we should not, you know, the qualifications for dress are that it be modest, that it not be extravagant. You know, we should dress the way the world dress. We should, you know, have jobs. We should do all of those things. But it should not lead us to live like the world in every way. We should, we should live our lives in a way, and I want to be careful because you have to be very careful about this in the way that you behave, in the way that you behave. People should be uncomfortable in some senses being around us as Christians. Our friends that are not Christians should be uncomfortable around us. And I, I have to give this disclaimer, even though I've given it to you a million times. It's not because you're a jerk. It's not because you're mean or because you're like making them feel less than. It's because holiness stands out. Holiness stands out. Living for Christ in a holy manner stands out. And there's no way around that. There's no way around that. So while we should be incarnational, while we should live in a way that um, you know, we don't have to look like weirdos in the world. We can dress, we can act, we can like they do. We can, we can work the same jobs. We can hang out in similar places. Our holiness should stand out because holiness is so set apart, literally what the word means. It's so set apart and it's so e easily distinguishable for how, from how the world lives that it should stand out. It's pertinent today because holy living is not something that is commonly found in the world. It's not something that is commonly found even in Sunday morning services in places of worship. Holiness is pertinent today because it is most often, our holiness and our pursuit of holiness most often deter, uh, is determined by is motivated by our perspective of God. If our perspective of God is low, if our perspective of God is weak, then our holiness will be often lacking. If our perspective of God is right and true and how the Bible describes, then our holiness will be changed and affected by that because no one can see God properly no Christian can see God properly and not have a bent or a lean towards living holy.
living right lives. The two cannot coincide. So if we struggle with living like Christ, if we struggle with obeying the the calling of the Spirit of God in our lives, it may be as simple as we don't understand God. It may not be that we're not Christians. It may be that we don't understand God. But it also may be that we need to repent and trust Jesus. It may just be as simple as that. If we don't understand, if we don't understand how other people can follow the Lord and it not feel fake, if we don't understand how we can follow the Lord, it may be that we just need to submit our lives to Christ, ask for forgiveness of our sins, repent of our sins, and trust Jesus. But just in case it's that we don't have a proper perspective of God, I'm going to try to help you with that today, okay? Uh, we have, I have one more major point and then a bunch of things under that. Uh, the, the other major point, this is number four, because we had one, two, three last week. This is number four. <coughs> we are on the proper path when we conduct ourselves in the fear of God. We're on the proper path when we conduct ourselves in the fear of God. I'm going to preach on fear today and the fear of God. And I hope that that might help instill in you a proper perspective, if you, if you feel like that's lacking, a proper perspective that will lead you to pursue a life of holiness. The theme of this last section of our sermon is reverent fear. Like we have already seen, because we have the inheritance and salvation that we anticipate, we should set our hope completely on the grace of Christ to come, which should cause us to to devote ourselves to holy living and also (coughs) a key component that we might have left out had we not gone book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is living in fear. Now, you might not see fear as the logical next step after hearing about the grace of of Christ and about hearing about our great salvation, but fear really is the check and balance that makes sure that we don't become these puffed up, spoiled Christians. Fear is the thing that makes us understand that we don't just receive gifts We don't just receive all of these blessings, but there is also a responsibility that goes along with those gifts and blessings so that we don't take advantage of this great salvation. We actually live in a Christian age who has left the fear of God out of their teaching. And that has led to some very negative consequences. One consequence being that Christians in large part do not pursue holy living as we should because we do not see the necessity of being holy from the standpoint of fearing the Lord. Preaching Christ without fear causes us to look at sin as less than, as less severe than it actually is. Sin just Preaching Christ without fear allows sin to just be something else we do as a part of our daily lives and not something that is an affront to a holy God. It causes us to have an informal view of God. 
where we only see him as daddy, like the spoiled brats, and not as father who also judges. When I wrote that down in my notes, I thought of Clueless, the movie Clueless from the 90s. She's a spoiled girl. She, when she wants something from her daddy, she says, Daddy, you know, this, this. We all, it's funny, and it's sort of a caricature of how Christians live because often we look at God and, and we say, Daddy, I need help. I need spiritual help. I need health. I need, I need you to take care of this financial situation, Daddy. I need you to, um, I, I, we need a car that runs. We need our air conditions out. Um, you know, someone's sick. I need you to help. Dad, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong. These are all things that uh, God expects of you as, be, as being a part of the family of God. But but, but relying on him just as daddy is not the only thing he expects of you. Yes, he is our Abba, and we can cry out. He is our close father, like, like you know those good relationships that you have if you've had them with your father. He is a father that we can cry out to and rely on and depend on every day, every second. But that's not the only aspect of our relationship with him. And when we preach God without fear as God as father, but not God as also judge, what we do is we dumb down the expectations that God has for those who walk with him. We spoil ourselves. We spoil ourselves when we preach God without preaching fear. Fear of God is not a new concept. Jesus taught it. To the disciples. It's not just an Old Testament concept. It is a New Testament concept. So that's sort of the first little point. That fear has a place in the life of believers. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father. Who judges impartially according to each one's <coughs> deeds. Conduct, our, <coughs> conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Fear has a place in the lives of believers. It's not something that we should throw out. It's not something that we should avoid. It's not something that we should cringe at. Peter commands us to conduct ourselves with fear, having known what we know, having known what we've been taught before about this great salvation, having conduct, our, having conduct ourselves with fear. We often think of fear being an old Testament concept, like the God of the Old Testament changed when Jesus came, and that the God of the Old Testament doesn't exist anymore, that Jesus changed him, and it's the God of the New Testament, and, and now we all exist in, you know, uh, as I've mentioned before, you know, fluffy unicorn cloud playland. It's all roses and, 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 and fruit and berries, and everything's wonderful, I don't know. I couldn't. I was. I really probably should have just like said candy or something like that. But I thought of that old commercial, the berries and cream, berries and cream. Sorry. I'm a little elf that loves berries and cream. All right. Sorry. We we misunderstand. We misunderstand. We misrepresent the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, who are the same God, who behave in the same way. When we take fear out of the equation. As I, as I mentioned a minute ago, Jesus spent time mentioning fear. He taught his disciples about 
the fear of the Lord. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, soul and body in hell. We have it upside down. We spend most of our days fearing those who, cannot, who can only destroy our body, but cannot destroy our soul. We spend most of our days fearing people who have no real legitimate long-term power over us when we should be fearing the God who is in control of both body and soul. The fear of God is something that Paul taught also in Philippians 2.12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Fear has always, the fear of God has always been in the equation for the life of believers. It's always been something that is necessary to understand the character of God. Is that bothering you? To understand the character of God and to be able to trust him in a real and personal way. <clears throat> I would argue for reasons that you are about to read and see in our text today that our fear of the Lord should be greater now. We should fear the God of the New Testament even more than the God of the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you reasons why today. Even though they're the same God, if you want to delineate, if you want to differentiate the two, we should fear the God of the New Testament more than the God of the Old. Uh, I'm not delineating those. Remember, you're the one doing that. Um, and there are many reasons, and we're going to look at those today. Uh, so fear is a natural part of the life of believers. It's, it should be a natural part of being a Christian. Here's another thing. We fear because our Father is our judge. We fear because our Father is our judge. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. We know that God is our Father. Peter has done a great job of explaining that already. But Peter now tells us that he is not only our, <coughs> our father, but he is our judge. He is our judge, and we often don't look at God this way. Many churches, including ours at times and other great ones, often soften down this part of the personality of God. How many times have you told someone about Jesus, and you spent the entire time talking about Jesus, and only mentioned love and grace? How many times have you talked to someone about Jesus and spent an entire time talking about Jesus and only mentioned forgiveness? How many times uh, do you pray only asking God for what he can do for you and only asking him to help someone else or help you or to solve a problem? How many times do we pray expecting God to just be there at every whim and every desire of ours? I've often prepared sermons wondering if I was too hellfire and brimstone and thinking it might scare someone away. It might give someone the wrong idea. But friends, genuinely scaring someone away is called conviction. Making someone think about their soul and the great debt of sin that they own is called conviction. 
And conviction, I don't know if you know this, is the first step to salvation. You have to first recognize that you're a sinner in, in a great debt of sin, in a great need for a Savior, before you can actually repent and trust and believe and follow him. We often do such a good job of trying to change the character and the nature of God that we allow people to miss altogether who he is. Now, I've said this before. Um, I mean, I've said this a million times. I think we do a disservice to people um, when we do this. But I've said this before about myself. Um, I want my children to fear me. And I know it makes some of you cringe, and it's fine. I don't care because I think you're wrong on it. But I, if, if it does cause you to cringe. But I want my children to fear me. I think another reason that we don't understand um, the character of God is because we don't understand what it's like to have a good father and son and father and child relationship. And I think a good father and child relationship is modeled by the one I'm about to describe. Um, I want my children to fear me. When I think of my own kids, uh, I want them to be a little scared when I raise my voice. When, when I give them the side eye, I want them to know what that means. And it doesn't work all the time. I wish it worked. It, it just is proof that you're not God, so that's good. Um, but I want, it, I want it to work. I want them to know that if they do something wrong, they will get punished. And their punishment will fit the crime. I want them to know that I am the boss, that Anna is the boss, and they are not the boss. And they will not be the boss ever. As long as they're my children, I'll be the boss. As a matter of fact, there's no statute of limitations on honoring your parents. Um, so our family, uh, we discipline our kids. We discipline them early. I mean like early. Uh, like two weeks old. I'm just kidding. Like... Like six, seven, eight, eight months, we're starting to like do things that hurt their feelings. Like if they, if we know that they disobeyed on purpose, we're like patting them on the bottom where it doesn't hurt, but it hurts their feelings. We're doing it early and we're doing it often. Uh, our family disciplines this way because our children need to know early, not just um, what obedience is, but they need to learn early that there is authority in their life and they're going to have to follow it. But even more than that, that God is their authority and God chastens those that he loves. He rebukes those that he loves and they're going to have to be able to handle the rebuke of God, which is much worse than anything that I can do. But I believe my way of thinking is the way that models godly behavior. And here's why I think that. I don't, when I discipline my children... I don't think there's ever a time where they think, my daddy hates me, or my daddy is about to kill me, or my daddy is going to cast me out of my family. I believe, probably not so much now, but I believe as time goes on, they will understand that when I discipline my children in love consistently, I'm teaching them a lesson, all of these things, I'm doing it because I want them to, they are a part of my family. Do you know what happens when your children do that kind of stuff around me? Unless I feel really comfortable, I'm like, I'm just going to let those jerks be little jerks. I'm not going to deal with it. 
if I'm comfortable around you and you've given me permission, I'll do, I'll, you know, do something. I won't let your kids act like little jerks. But the reason I don't discipline your children the same way I, don't, I discipline mine is because they're not my children. They're not my children. God disciplines us because we are his children. And he doesn't discipline those that are not of the faith in the same way because they're not his children. But I think that we have a misunderstanding of the fear of God because it has not been modeled. What proper discipline and loving discipline has not been modeled for us. And so we look at any sort of discipline from God and we think, God hates me. Well, if we had been disciplined properly as a child, maybe we would understand. <coughs> or if we had the common sense to see it, at least, maybe we would understand that it's not because God hates us, it's because God loves us. It wasn't because our father hated us. Now, obviously, if you didn't have a perfect, if you didn't have a good measurement of that, it might be because your father was a terrible person. Um, but a good model of that shows love. It shows drawing in. It shows care. It shows development. It doesn't show casting out. I think we don't have a proper understanding of the fear of God because we don't have a proper understanding of God. But also we don't have a proper understanding of what it means to have a God, a God who is a father and a judge. And Peter says here, he is going to judge you according to your deeds. By the way, this is personal. This is not judge non-Christians. Every single person <coughs> that has walked the earth will be judged. The Bible says that everyone will give an account of himself unto God. Christians and non-Christians alike. Peter says, you will be judged. And he says, you will be judged for what? Look at, uh, look at the verse again. According to each one's deeds. This is everything that you do. You're going to be judged for. Now, here is the greatest difference. When I judge my children, when I judge their behavior, it is to draw them in and to bring them in and to make them better. When I judge your kids' behavior, it's like, get those brats away from me. Your kids aren't brats, mostly. Mostly. But, when I ju but, but anybody's kids, after you've already raised your own kids, anyone's children, trying to raise them, it's kind of like, you know. Not again. I've got five. I don't need any more. Um, but when I think about your kids, I'm disciplining them to correct a behavior in the moment. Right? I'm not disciplining them to, like, raise them up like you are. Right? In a, in a way I am. But <clears throat> when I'm disciplining my own kids, it's not to cast them out. It's not to cast them out. It's to draw them in. So when God disciplines us, when God judges us, he judges us. Now, part of the judgment of God comes right now. Part of the judgment of God is we pay the consequence of our sin right now so that we can be better Christians, so that we can be better humans. When God judges those that are not a part of his family, it'll be in the future. It'll be a future judgment. It'll be an eternal judgment. So we are judged by God. We are judged now. We will be judged in some way later. I don't know exactly how that works. <clears throat> but we are kept also. We don't have to fear condemnation. So the thought of knowing that all of our actions are to be judged by God should cause us to fear. We should have a holy suspicion about ourselves 
and a holy fear of offending a holy God. This doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it means a fear that leads to a change of our life's patterns. A fear that causes us to contemplate our steps. Peter says, live in fear in the time of exile. That is, for the entire time that you have on earth, fear the God who is both, excuse me, our Father and our Judge. This last point is why I think, this last point is what I think should cause us our greatest amount of fear for the Lord. We fear God because of the great cost of redemption. We fear God because of the great cost of redemption. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, <clears throat> so that your faith and hope are in God. We fear because of the great cost of our redemption. We fear the Lord. The first coming of Christ, we see in verse 13, spurs us on to faith and hope. The holiness of God gives us a pattern to follow in verses 14 through 16. And then the judgment of God and the great cost of his salvation causes us to call upon the name of Jesus for our salvation and fear God the Father in a holy and reverent way. And when we call upon Jesus, he saves us. But he saves us and we are bought with a steep, steep Price. Verse 18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways. The ransom here refers to how a slave would have been purchased and freed. Or how someone kidnapped would have been purchased. Now Peter's audience was ransomed. Um, now what was holding them hostage? The feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. To be ransomed from such a pattern of sin that is broken, that is no longer. The image is literally being taken from one place and being put in another. Being taken out of the Greco-Roman pagan way of living and being placed into the holiness of God. Being taken out of an Americanized form of Christianity or an American belief system, a Western belief system, and being placed in the holiness of of God. Feudal means that their ways were empty, they were worthless, they had no meaning. This is not just sinning, this is a pattern of sin, a pattern of living worthless lives, of living a life for dying things that they had inherited. It was a part of their inheritance. Their, I think specifically here, meaning being Greek, being Roman, they inherited this futile way. But our great ransom and the fear of the Lord breaks these chains. What implication does this have for us? I think there are two, this great uh, inheritance that is paid. Jesus breaks the chain of sin in our lives and he sets us on a solid foundation. It's not just that um, we were ransomed and just sort of free to go about our own ways with no money, no, no clothes, no nothing. It's that he ransomed us and then he placed us in the house 
of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So it's not just that we're ransomed, but we're ransomed and we're saved and placed on a firm foundation. But there is another thing that needs to be seen here. Peter says we are ransomed from our feudal ways that were inherited from our forefathers. Do you know what Peter is saying? That the gener- there is a generational curse of sin, but through Christ, the generational curse of sin can be broken. You have inherited sin from Adam. You have inherited sin from the family that you were raised in, but you don't have to keep this sinful nature. You have been freed from the sinful pattern of Adam, but you have also been freed from the sinful pattern of the family that you were born into. In Christ, you don't have to inherit things that your parents do or did. You aren't what your past says you are. You are what Christ says you are. And if you are his child, he says you are redeemed, you are ransomed, and you are like him. You are not like those things. You may have come from a terrible family, and you may have inherited some terrible behaviors. You may worry that in some ways you will end up just like those parents that you may despise. But our redemption is not just from what we have done or will do. Our redemption is from a lifestyle that we inherit or that we were even born into. You are not bound to your last name. If your last name is something to be, is desirable, it's something that you like, it's something that you're proud of, that's wonderful. If your last name is not something that you're necessarily proud of, if your family is not, you know, you're not taking them to to all the barbecues and the parties and the work functions because you're slightly embarrassed of their behavior and the things that they do, you you are not bound to their behavior. You're not bound to their lifestyle. I do believe that sin has generational implications, that the son pays for the sins of the father, but through Christ, those chains are broken. You're not just redeemed. You are redeemed from the futile ways of your past. We are not our parents. We are not our family. In Christ, we are new We have a new father, we have a new master, we have a new home, we have a new standard and pattern and way of living. And we should be living in healthy fear of this father who's in all, who's in control of all of it. This is why this next little section, and it's going to be small and I'll be done, is why I fear the Lord the most. This is why I fear the Lord. Because our salvation came with a great cost. This is why I fear the Lord. And if you can't, if you can't muster up in your heart any other reason to fear the Lord, this is why you should fear the Lord. And if, it, if this doesn't get it, you need to repent and believe the gospel and become a Christian. Our salvation came with a great cost. We should fear the Lord because we were not redeemed with perishable things. Peter says you were ransomed, but not with money not with silver or gold, which was of highest value and still is of highest value. Um, You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You should fear God because he is in control of your salvation and you are not redeemed with things that you can earn or deserve or work through. Good works will not do. Silver or gold will not do. 
<coughs> nothing other than the precious blood of Jesus Christ will redeem us. So that's the second thing. One reason I fear the Lord is because we are not redeemed with perishable things. I cannot save myself. I cannot do enough. I cannot earn my way to salvation. The other reason is because we are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We should fear the Lord because Christ because God killed his own son and gave him to us to save us, to cover our sin debt. And if we take that lightly, it should cause us great fear. Not with things that tarnish or wear out, not with works that fade um, when Jesus returns or you die, but, with, but the hereditary chain of sin is broken by the spotless and pure blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ at the cross is the outward evidence that his sacrificial death paid for our redemption. The blood of Christ at the cross is effective and it is precious <coughs> because it is the blood of God's own Son. What does the blood of Christ do for us? By the blood of Christ, our consciousness, our conscience are cleared. They're cleansed. We see that in Hebrews 9:14. By the blood of Christ, we gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. Hebrews 10, 19. By the blood of Christ, we are progressively cleansed from, from more and more sin. We see that in 1 John 1, 7. By the blood of Christ, we are able to conquer the accuser of the brethren. By, uh, we see that in Revelation 12, 11. By the blood of Christ, we are rescued from a sinful way of life. We see that today in 1 Peter 1, 19. We would do well to understand and recover this biblical teaching of the blood of Christ and the precious nature of Christ's blood. It would instill, I believe, in us a healthy fear of the Lord if we did. Our salvation came at a great cost, not, uh, not because we could buy it, not because we could earn it, but because of the precious nature of the blood. Another reason that we should have fear is because we are redeemed by a substitutionary atonement like a lamb without spot or blemish. He went in our place when we could not go to that place. He poured out his blood when our blood was not sufficient. He gave his life when our life was due. It was a death that we should have taken. It was a wrath that belonged to us, and he went in our stead. What a precious sacrifice. This is called substitutionary atonement. When someone else, Christ, steps in our place to pay for the sin that we have accrued and the wrath that we deserve. Peter says, like a lamb without spot or blemish, it reminds us of the Passover lamb. Or the spotless lamb needed in the Old Testament sacrifices that, was, that temporarily, temporarily sufficed the wrath of God. He went in our place. He took on what we should have taken. Our salvation is precious because it was the precious blood of God. It was his son that went as a substitute. We should fear God. We should fear a God, and I don't mean this funny, but we should fear a God who is willing to kill his own son to save sinners. 
We should fear God because our redemption was foreknown. It shows the power of the God that we serve. He was foreknown, verse 20 says, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. We should fear God because any God that any being that is in control of all things before when it says uh, when it says before the foundation of the world that means before things were created any being that is in control of things like this and has been in control throughout time and will be in control in the future is worthy of our honor and fear <coughs> I'm not going to belabor this point any more than I've already done because we've spoken on it, but not only was our salvation foreknown before the beginning of time, but the method of our salvation was known before the, foreknown before the beginning of time, and God has been in charge of that the whole time. Another reason we should fear the Lord is because our redemption is powerful. Look at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our redemption is powerful. Our salvation is special because it took a resurrection from the dead of the Son of God in order to save us. If Christ had not risen, then there would be no life. But the Father who is, but God who is the Father and our judge is also the one that raised Jesus from the dead. His son that he killed for our sin and our wrath, he also, and he foreknew it from the beginning of time, he also raised him from the dead. And if that doesn't cause at least a little quivering, if that doesn't cause at least a little fear, then there's something wrong. I'm so fearful of the Lord, I think in a reverent way, not in, in the way that a son fears his father, not in a way that he's going to cast me out or strike me down, but in a way that I don't want to dishonor him. My hope is that I discipline my children in a way that they love me so that when they're older, when I'm not disciplining them anymore, they're doing things to honor me because they love me and not because they have a belt behind them. And eventually, this is what happens with believers. God disciplines us in a way that eventually we just start honoring him because we love him and not because we worry about the belt behind us. We fear the Lord because the gift of salvation is such a precious gift. Would you want to trample on that gift? Have you ever given a gift to someone? and you were really excited about it, and you thought it was great, and you knew they were going to love it, and they were like, hmm, thank you. This is good. I love this. Like you expected them to like climb to the top of the highest building and shout out how great your love was for them. You know, just imagine, you know, how you felt in that situation. Just imagine how God feels when we take this precious gift of his son's blood, we take this precious gift of salvation. And the most we can muster up is, hmm, so thankful. So great. It's awesome. <clears throat> we definitely can't muster up obedience. 
Imagine how God feels. Would you be the would you want to be the one that tramples on such a precious gift? Would you want to be the one that toys with a God with so much power? Along with love and joy and hope and faith and peace and all those things, there should be another spiritual characteristic that we mention here that is summed up in all of these, and that is seriousness. Our, our faith should be modeled by love and hope and peace and grace and joy and all those things, but it also should be modeled as serious. I wouldn't want to be found as one who is toying with a God with this much power who foreknew our salvation, who foreknew the way of salvation, who has been upholding that since the beginning of time, who upholds us with his righteous right hand. And I definitely fear the Lord because I wouldn't want to find myself at the wrong end of a God like that who is also responsible for judging me. I wouldn't want to find myself at the end of my life at the wrong end of a God like that. So as a Christian, I don't take for granted the gift that was given to me. I don't take for granted the depth of my sin and what he was willing to do, the steps that God was willing to take to save me. As a non-Christian, I don't want to be caught not having that faith at the end of my life, knowing that the God who judged and made every way possible for me to belong to him is now responsible for casting down my final sentence. Would you pray with me today? Lord God, you are holy and you are just. <coughs> there is literally none like you on this earth. Would you help us to have a proper perspective of you that leads us to fear you rightly? A reverent fear that knows that you are the father of us, but you are also our judge. You know us in a personal way, and all of our deeds will be judged. Help us not to live worried about the beating, but help us to live worried about honoring a God who loves so richly, so purely, so mightily, that he's willing to go through every length to save us. Help it to cause us to have great reverence and trust and joy, and love, and fear. We love you, we praise you, we ask for all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.